All right, continuing our, our study through Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we come in this session to the beginning of the second half of the letter. Ephesians is very neatly divided into chapters 1 through 3, chapters 4 through 6. And so those are the two big chunks of the letter. 1 through 3 is really theological considerations, and 4 through 6 are practical implications. 1 through 3 is this is what God has done. This is who God has made you. Chapters 4 through 6 are. So here's how you live in light of that. Live who you are. Live who God made you. And that's the way Ephesians is very clearly uh, organized. And so here in this session, we're going to look at Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, which is the first paragraph in the second half of the letter, where Paul is calling us to live according to everything that God has done for us in Christ. And so, as we begin, this section begins with the word, therefore. Therefore, meaning, all right, based on everything I said, based on what God has done, based on all of that. And so, Paul has explained what he refers to in chapter 4, verse 1, as their calling in chapters 1 through 3. And now, based on that, he's going to expound what it looks like to live that out. Uh, this is who God has made you. This is what God has done. Now, here's how you live it out. And that's what we begin here in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And the initial call that Paul makes here is for us to live in unity, which in view of the preceding context is terribly important. Chapter 2, right, verses 11 through 22, Paul talked about how God created one new humanity out of all of mankind. You had the Gentiles who were far from God. You had the Jews who knew about God, but they, they weren't walking with him. And so bringing all together in Christ as one brand new, made alive humanity in Christ. Now, you're going to have to live that out. You're going to have to live out the unity that God has created. And so that's going to be the focus of this first paragraph here in Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. With that, then, let's jump into some of the details. It says this, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And this is how Paul begins this second half of the book. And this whole second half is going to be about that, about walking in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called. And when he says the calling with which you have been called, he means Everything he just wrote about in chapters 1 through 3. That's the calling with which you have been called. That's you being designated as the people of God. That's you being exhibit A to the rulers and authorities of God's wisdom, grace, and power. Right? Like This is the calling you have been called. You're God's people, his holy people, blessed with every spiritual blessing, made alive in Christ, united as one new humanity. In view of all of that, there's a certain way you need to live. This is who you are now. Paul is going to describe how to live like it. And so he says, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. Like, live out and live up to the status that God has given you. Live in keeping with who God, live worthy of it is the idea. And notice, Paul has really thrown the whole weight of his experience behind that. In fact, it's emphatic in Greek. We lose a little flavor of that here in this translation, but it's very emphatic. He says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord. Well, Greek verbs have the subject embedded in the verb. 
And so this is actually emphatic in grief. Here's a literal translation of the way Paul writes it. He says, I exhort you, therefore, me, the prisoner of the Lord, to walk worthy. That's literally what he says. Notice that emphatic me, he throws in another word for I or me. So I exhort you, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord. He's, he's emphatic about this. And it's under the weight of him being the prisoner of Jesus, right? Like, again, he's not so much a prisoner of the Romans. He's a prisoner of the Lord. He's given his whole life to Jesus on his behalf. And so with the weight of his suffering on behalf of Jesus for them, he says, walk in a manner worthy. Carry out your life in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. He so believes what he says that he suffered pain and social stigma for it. He wants you to so believe it that you'll live worthy of it. Uh, this is the governing principle, really, for all behavior for those in Christ. Is it worthy of Jesus? Is it worthy of being his people? Um, is it, is it uh, you know, a rule in the Bible? Well, maybe, maybe not, but that doesn't necessarily matter. Is it worthy of Christ, and is it worthy of being his people? And so... Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And the first thing that Paul has in mind is unity. Notice what he says. Let's keep reading. Verse 2, he says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So that's that's the first thing he has in mind when he calls uh, them and us to walk in a manner worthy, and he calls us to really be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. Let's walk through the details of verses 2 and 3 so we can think through exactly how he says it. He, he actually begins by listing off character traits or virtues that will promote unity, that will help us preserve the unity, okay? So he's really telling us, in a sense, how to preserve this built-in unity that God has created. And he, he starts with these traits. He says, with humility and gentleness. Humility and gentleness. First two traits. So humility, which by Greco-Roman standards, the standards of the culture of Paul's day, humility was almost always looked on in a negative light. It was to be lowly. It was to be subservient. It was, right, like, no, you've got to look out for number one. You've got to defend yourself. We're, we're people of honor. And so lowliness, which is really the essence of this word humility here, was viewed in Paul's culture as a negative trait, a negative thing. I mean, like, that's somebody who's lowly. And yet the Christians, in keeping with Jesus' self-sacrifice and self-giving love, took that and said, no, that's a beautiful thing. That's a good thing to lower yourself for the sake of others, to put others in front of you and consider their needs first, right? Like Paul describes this in Philippians chapter, three, uh, chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, as Thinking of others is more important than yourselves and not looking out for your own interest, but looking out for the interest of others. That's the kind of humility that Paul has in mind here, and that promotes unity. In fact, that humility that's described there in, in Philippians chapter 2 is in the same context of unity, working for unity, maintaining unity. And so this is a key trait for unity. Whether that unity is in your family, whether that unity is in a church group, whether that unity is in a whole large church, humility promotes 
unity. And so he says, with all humility and gentleness. And gentleness, this word is really hard to kind of capture the full sense or full flavor of it in English, but it's the idea of, again, considering others. Um, not, you know, whatever your strengths, whatever your power is, like you're not just a bull in a china shop where you're just bullying people over. You're not just climbing over the top of people to get ahead, right? You're not just, you're not just using your strength and your power for selfish gain. You're gentle. You're thoughtful of others. You're thoughtful of other people's perspectives. You're thoughtful of other people's feelings. You're thoughtful of other people's needs. That's the idea of gentleness here. One of the ways that I used to describe this when my kids were small was when I would wrestle with my kids. I mean, like, if I used all my power, all my strength, it wouldn't have been a very fun wrestling match with my kids when they were small. Who knows? I might have hurt them. I might have broken a bone or something, right? No. I actually restrained my strength for their well-being because I was considerate of them. That kind of gets a little bit at this idea of gentleness. It's being considerate of others and their needs, their perspective, their thoughts, what they're good at, what they're not good at, seeing things from their perspective, and restraining yourself for their sake. And so with all humility and gentleness, next he says, with patience, and we have a pretty good idea what patience is. Patience is just the ability to be long-suffering, to not get irritated, irritated or angry easily. Like, takes a lot to make us angry. We're patient with people. Um, those three traits, humility, gentleness, and patience, lead to the next descriptor, showing tolerance for one another in love. Like, when you're humble, gentle, and patient, then you can show tolerance for one another in love. Literally, I'm not a big fan of the word tolerance here because of some of the ways that word is misunderstood or misused, I think, in our culture. Tolerance here literally is putting up with. That's the idea. You put up with people. This is actually one of the things I love about the scriptures is how realistic they are. And this is a very realistic description. When you've got people from different backgrounds, different races, different ethnicities, different cultures, right? Like different heritage. There's just, there's a lot of differences and we're not always going to understand each other and people are going to do things different and maybe they'll do things that bug us, right? So you got to put up with them and you do so in love. That's the idea here. So humility, gentleness, patience enables us to put up with each other. That's the idea here. So showing tolerance is better understood as putting up with each other in love. In love. We don't do this begrudgingly. We don't do this with our arms crossed. We don't do this, right? Like as if, oh, you know, those awful people. We do this in love, motivated by love, because we care for them, because they matter to us. They're important to us. And so we want to try to treat them well. And even if that means putting up with things about them we don't understand. And so with humility and gentleness and patience, showing tolerance, i.e., putting up with one another in love. Here is the call then, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's ultimately what he wants. All of this humility, gentleness, patience, putting up with one another is aimed at being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. Like being diligent is being eager, working hard towards, being earnest about. This is important to us. And notice we're not creating the unity. The Spirit has created the unity. Our job is just to preserve it. Don't wreck it. Don't ruin it. So be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Like, 
Our job is to maintain, to keep, to preserve the unity, the oneness that the Spirit created. And the Spirit is regularly associated with unity in the New Testament. Like, if you have the Spirit of God and I have the Spirit of God, then we're one. It doesn't matter our background. It doesn't matter our preferences. It doesn't matter if we have an affinity or we naturally like each other or we would have normally gotten together otherwise. If you're in the Spirit and I'm in the Spirit and the Spirit's in you and the Spirit's in me, we're one. That's the idea. The Spirit has created this unity because he's come to fill all of God's people. So all of those in Christ are full of the Spirit and therefore they are one, one. They are united. And so now we have to work hard to protect and preserve that unity. And we do so with traits like humility, gentleness, patience, putting up with one another, and love. And so we work hard to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice that. This is that picture of peace, shalom, being the bond that connects us together. We don't want conflict or hostility to drive a wedge in amongst God's people. We're going to let peace rule. We're going to let peace lead the way. We're going to let peace knit our hearts together. Shalom. Shalom is a sense of blessedness, wholeness, well-being, and harmony. And so we're going to work together to make sure that shalom and harmony prevails and keeps us knit together. Now from there, what Paul does in verses 4 through 6 is he just lists off, really, like kind of almost a sevenfold description of oneness. The Spirit has created oneness. If you're in Christ and I'm in Christ, we are one. And Paul just lists off some of those really big theological words or themes that speak to our oneness. We have a common identity. We have a common set of beliefs. We have a common experience of Christ. We have a common, therefore, worldview. It's all of this that has made us one in the Spirit that now we have to work hard to preserve that oneness. So here is really a theological description of our oneness given to us by God through the Spirit in Christ. Let's read. He says in verses 4 through 6, There is one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. It's that sevenfold description of oneness. So there is one body in verse 4. What's that? Well, that's the body of Christ. That's the church. That's the people of God formed in Christ. And there's only one. There's not two, there's not three, there's not a hundred, there's not a zillion of them. There's just one body. There's one people of God in Christ. And there's one spirit. And keeping with the analogy, think of that, your body, your physical body, literally, and your physical spirit, there's just one, right? Well, God has poured out his spirit in the one body of Christ. And so we're one, one body, one spirit. Uh, the Holy Spirit who has come to live in us and among us in Christ. And it's the same Spirit who dwells in me that dwells in you. It's the same Spirit who dwells in every believer, regardless of background, regardless of heritage, regardless of race. There is the same Spirit, the very Spirit of God. And as I noted a second ago, the Spirit is regularly um, 
communicated in Paul's writings as an indicator of, a creator of, a source of, an indicator of unity, oneness, harmony, right? Like uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 is a good verse on that, where that in one body we were all baptized in one spirit, right? Like that's who we are. We are the people of God and we are one, one body, one spirit. It goes on and says, just as you were called, that idea of this calling that we have, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, that we have one common hope. Our common hope is for God to make all things new in Christ. We're looking for the, the day when Jesus will return. There will be a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's our destiny. That's our ultimate goal. And there's one. There's one hope. There's one there's one thing we're looking forward to in Christ, and it unites us together. So one hope. There's verse 5. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Short little verse. Three big ones. Uh, one Lord, meaning Jesus. Um, Kyrios is very often just a way Paul refers to Jesus. as right. So this is one Lord. There's one Lord. That's Jesus himself. There's one faith. By one faith, he doesn't, he doesn't mean like, like uh, subjective faith, my faith, your faith. He means one faith, one Christian faith, one Christian belief system. That's the idea. So faith here is more in the objective sense, as in like Jude, Jude verse 3 says, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That's the faith we're talking about. The belief in God, Jesus, Spirit, the belief in Jesus as King and Lord, that faith. There's one faith, one faith. And he says there's one baptism. And what he's referring to is the common Christian entrance experience. Like um, in Paul's day and age, when someone believed in Christ, they were baptized usually immediately. You look in the book of Acts, and it happened usually at the exact same time on the same day. Someone put their faith in Christ, boom, they got baptized almost immediately, usually on the same day. See that, for example, in Acts 16 with the Philippian jailer. You see that in Acts chapter 8. Uh, with the Ethiopian eunuch where he's with Philip and he sees water. He's like, what prevents me from being baptized? And he baptizes him right then and there. That's the way it worked in the ancient world. And sadly, it doesn't work that way in our world anymore. Sometimes we've separated baptism from uh, initial commitment of faith by months or years. Uh, that's just unfortunate. If we actually practice it the way they practice it, this would probably make more sense to us. There's one baptism. There's just one. When someone puts their faith in Jesus, they get baptized. Um, and that is the common Christian entrance experience is that one baptism that unites us together. That's the reason Paul could write to the Romans. He's never been there. He didn't start that church. And he can have a whole chapter where he just draws out a particular implication of baptism, assuming they've all been baptized. Why? Because it was the common Christian uh, entrance experience. It's what people did when they put their faith in Jesus. Why did they do it that way? Well, it's because what Jesus told them to do. In Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, Jesus said, make disciples. How? Jesus, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. And so that's how you make a disciple. You baptize them and you teach them. And so the early church just practiced what Jesus told them to do in Matthew 28, and they baptized people. And as a result, Paul can speak of one baptism. One baptism. So there's one Lord. There's one faith. There's one Christian baptism. And then there's one God and Father. Like There's one God and one Father of all who is over all, through all, 
and in all. That ultimately, God is over all things. God is over all people. God is the source, and God is the goal, and God is the really the one in whom we live and move and have our being. And there's just one. There's just one. And so verses 4 through 6 is this massive theological description of our oneness, of our oneness. Um, and so the primary implication of this, uh, these six verses is what Paul calls us to, that we would, we would live as one. We would work hard for oneness. What I find fascinating is this is the very first call to action in the second half of the book, when Paul begins to draw out the implications of all that he said, and when he calls us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, the first thing he says is, fight for unity. Like, the Spirit created unity. Your job is to keep it. Your job is to maintain it. So work hard at that. Be diligent at that. Make sure you're putting on humility and gentleness and patience. Make sure you're willing to put up with people who are different from you and think differently than you and really see things from their perspective and listen to them. Work hard at that. Work for harmony and shalom and peace in your relationships. Preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And this is the first call to action. So this is the first and primary way we need to live worthy of the calling with which we've been called. We need to work hard to maintain the unity. And we could do a whole lot better job at that as God's people, couldn't we? Um, we need to work hard tangibly and practically within our own church. It's really easy to, to love the idea of unity with those people out there, right? To love the idea of unity. But like when you have to live with them on a day in and day out basis, when you go to small group with them, when you go to church with them, when they're your own family members, you're going to have to really work hard to not let resentment, bitterness, anger, grudges, right? unforgiveness get in the way you're going to have to work hard to be humble gentle patient kind and peaceful with the people you live with day in and day out so work hard for unity in the spirit by christ